My name is Brent. People call me Brent the Brilliant, Bodacious Brent, the Amazing Brent, and of course all the girls call me a podcast host. Fandalites, the weekly podcast for Jedi. Read and rediscover K. Applegate's Animorphs books one at a time. Uh, this week we're covering book 10, The Android. This one opens with Marco and Jake morphing dogs to sneak into a music festival. It's got some pretty recognizable names, honestly, for them being able to just sneak in. Uh, but maybe that's by 2017 standards. They run into a kid that used to go to their school, Eric King, handing out flyers for the sharing. But he is, and I quote... A black hole of smell. So the gang puts him under surveillance and witnesses him plow into a bus and sort of flicker. One second he's a normal kid, then the next he's more like some sort of robot, and then the next he's kid again. So they infiltrate a meeting of the sharing with a wolf spider morph, hoping that its differing vision will allow them to see through the hologram Eric's projecting. It turns out that he's from a race of androids called the Chi, who have been living on Earth for millennia, and Eric has infiltrated the sharing. Their creators, who are basically dogs, uh, spoiler alert, Earth dogs are all that's left of them, Program them for nonviolence so they can't actually fight the Yerks. They have discovered, however, that the Yerks managed to get their hands on a Pemolite crystal that could remove the nonviolence stricture. The Yerks, of course, are trying to use it to take over all of the computer systems on Earth. The Animorphs agree to retrieve it for Eric, and of course things go pear-shaped in the most violent way possible because this is an Animorphs book. Eric manages to rewrite his programming and save their lives at the last minute uh, of a basically hopeless fight but discovers that he has to live with the memories of that violence forever. So he ends up changing his programming back and giving the crystal to the Animorphs, as well as offering to feed them information in the future. Yeah, that, that's that's my summary. So first off, I wanted to say that uh, Eric King, the, the name that is given to this android, uh, was actually a, a real person who wrote a story for the Animorphs site they ran a contest. It was a fanfic contest? Yeah, it was a fanfic contest. <gasps> oh, good job, Eric. Yeah, so he wrote it and won, and that's why he got his name in the book. Oh, man, God. Preteen Jenna is just burning with envy right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> Eric is like a reoccurring character. Like, I remember him. He's definitely in some other books, and he's on the TV show, which is, you know, the highest glory. Uh, if you want to read his winning entry, it is archived on Syrup. <gasps> I have, I absolutely do, Brent. Yes, that's what I'm doing immediately after ending this podcast call. <laughs> so the chi. Yeah, God, another another world building heavy book. I appreciate that we need a couple of these to sort of set the stage, but it it does feel like it's coming. Uh, uh, it's coming a little close to the heels of uh, Axe's book because we get like four four more alien species in this one. You want to list them off? I guess so. We've got the Chi and the Pemolites. The Pemolites are a dog-like, but walk on two legs creature, a species of great peace and and wisdom. They're a very, very old, well, 
<laughs> they were a very, very old species. Uh, and they just loved play and happiness more than anything. So they made the chi to be like their eternal best friend companions. And the chi themselves look kind of like upright dogs. Like they've got kind of dog-like legs and a little bit of a muzzle and, and short little stubby fingers on their hands. Uh, the chi are androids. They are the eponymous androids of this book. Um, we have the Howlers, which are some sort of um, very aggressive, monstrous, kill everything, take no names sort of species that uh, are, in fact, the, the cause of the Pemelite's extinction. Notable that the Howlers used not only upfront techniques, but also chemical warfare. They, they used germ warfare to wipe out the Pemelites. Uh, and then we have the Dayang? Dayong? Something like that. Yeah, which are like a merchant species, which are only mentioned in passing. I remember the Howlers. I remember the word the Howlers. I don't really remember much about them, but they seem to have lingered with me. So I'm looking forward to seeing what atrocities they're going to wreck. I sort of immediately slotted them into the ancient universe-destroying race archetype that we've become so familiar with through... Marvel. Marvel, Mass Effect, Star mm. Control. yeah. Yeah, that's a popular trope and kind of an old trope as well. No less so here. <laughs> sure, yeah. But we'll see. I'll, I look forward to seeing more about the Howlers. I don't want to sound too excited. It's just that I remember them. I, I feel like we've gotten to the book section that I'm starting to actually remember a lot of these plots and a lot of the plot points. Although I was no less surprised and delighted by the fact that the Chi have like a massive underground dog park. <laughs> <laughs> I did not remember. I really appreciate that uh, K.A. Applegate took a book out of the Blood Space War to write about how awesome dogs are. Yeah, that is really like the theme of this book. It's about how good and pure and perfect dogs are. They're all good boys. Yes, and how that's really the only reason to save Earth. <laughs> that is something funny that she have been helping and protecting humanity because humanity has been helping and protecting dogs, and you can't separate them at this point. And they really just care about the dogs. Yeah, I mean, same. Yeah, same. Yeah, but they, yeah, the chi Eric specifically mentions that they helped humans sort of domesticate wolves by putting the remaining Pemelite souls into the wolf's body, and that made them dogs? I think he uses the word essence. Yeah, something like that. Something not, it's something, something sort of creationalist. Well, they, they are an intelligently designed species. Oh, fuck, Brent. They really literally are. Yeah, they, yeah. They're, they're androids. You can't yeah. get more designed than that. Lord. Yeah, so the, the fact that this book was called The Android seemed like it was, like, as I was reading through, I was like, this seems like it's written to be more suspenseful, but I know, I know what he is. I know what he is from the first second. He's an android. It's the it's the title of this book. Yeah, that was a little bit frustrating in the early chapters where they kept trying to figure this out, and you're you're sitting there screaming at the screen. It's the android. It's an android. The yeah. android. Yeah, it's the android. It's a, it's an android. It's the android. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know if like K A didn't get a say, and I because I feel like most of the book this hasn't really been an issue so far. Most of the books are sort of discreetly and vaguely titled, and that's just fine. Yeah. 
But this one, it was really like, hey, massive spoiler in the title of this book. Yeah, I don't know who named these. I don't know if that was K.A. Applegate or somebody at Scholastic. But I feel like you almost have to try to massively spoil a book with a two-word title where one of them is the. <laughs> yeah, and yet this this one managed. It does, it does. Yeah, I mean, the, the concept of the androids in general is really interesting to me because we get we get this moment where uh eric and and one of his friends jenny and some of the other uh chi it it is intimated that are basically infiltrating the yurks like they are infiltrating the sharing and, and trying to trying to as best they can without being violent because they're programmed to be non-violent stop the yurks and I think that's a really interesting concept, but we get this weird, horrible moment where Eric opens up his cranium and you can see the Yurk that he was supposed to have been infected by. And that was weird. Yeah, he's got it in a little pod with apparently self-powered Candrona to keep it alive and some little wires hooked up so he can tap into its memories and better ape it. He's reverse Yurked it. Yeah, yeah, that well put, well Terribly put, he reversed Yurk the Yurk uh, and is tapping into the Yurk's memories so that he can better infiltrate the sharing and the Yurk organization. But I, 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 you know, that almost made me wish this were a Cassie book because I feel like there is a really interesting ethical concern there because they, it, the, the Chi are nonviolent, but the Eric has captured and is imprisoning indefinitely a yerk so where does that leave him that's a, a really good question honestly but but yeah it, it is an interesting ethical dilemma um although i feel like in this case you can pretty handily call it in favor of the chi because that yerk did think that it was going to take over someone's brain when it crawled in there so <laughs> it kind of like fuck it yeah, I guess that yeah, I guess that Yurk specifically was already part of an invasion plan, so uh, it might have forfeited its rights as a prisoner of war. It's not like they scooped one out out of a pool that they happened upon. This was a Yurk <laughs> actively attempting to infest a host body. Yes, that's true. Uh, yeah, I guess it's in favor. It, it, there's just something really ominous about, and and Marco even points this out. And Marco's books tend to be less heavy on the ethics as Cassie's and more more heavy on the the jokes and inner turmoil but I even he points out like hey I feel a little bad for this yerk yeah well I mean I I feel like that's the the natural response for any sentient creature that doesn't build its empire on taking over other sentient species so I it's something I was drawn to is the fact that Eric is keeping his Yurk alive. The The setup they have is that Eric will bend down at the pool and make a hologram of the Yurk leaving his head and then it resists and gets dragged away. And then when he comes back, it makes a hologram of the Yurk returning. So the Yurk's never actually leaving his brain. It's just holograms up and down. But it, it raises the questions like if these Chi can sustain a Yurk life with their internal power source acting as a Cadrono ray, Pretty, pretty much indefinitely. It seems like that's Eric's plan. Like, why couldn't they just do that for all the Yerks? Like, why couldn't that just be the end goal for Yerks? They, every, every, every Yerk gets a robot body. I think perhaps the answer lies in what happened last time the Yerks were gifted with advanced technology. 
So you think that the fact that they've proven themselves, I mean, that's a, a good point. The fact that they've proven themselves likely to use technology to invade other species? I mean, maybe. They, they've they already societally shown that they have no problem with just completely conquering and dominating other planets and also an active desire to do so. Hmm. Uh, and the the robot bodies that the Chi have are shown later late in this book to be pretty incredibly strong and resilient so they might be removing the threat of yerks as you know a a mind enslaving race and just creating essentially daleks yeah yeah i was thinking terminators yeah yeah you make a good point i i mean i guess i've been maybe incorrectly assuming that part of the motivation for yerks wanting to make conquest on other species is that they wanted more hosts but that that's not that might not necessarily be the case because they don't seem to be using the human's host they don't seem to be using the human host for any good purpose like they don't seem to be indulging in any of the senses that humans have that other species don't or like i'm thinking especially again of the the sense of taste of which we've spoken of in episodes <laughs> past like the yurks seem to be really blowing it with these good good human bodies and i guess i just always i guess i've been operating under the assumption that the yurks conquered races because they wanted to experience life through those new bodies but you might be right that might not be the case at all so there's nothing saying that there's not a significant portion of yurks who do just want to be able to live a life with a body that's not a slug with no senses who lives in a pond right but at this point the society that they have is entirely centered around military conquering and colonial rule so if you'd caught them before serious kindness and given them robot bodies with internal candronas Things might have turned out way differently, but right now you have a bunch of people who report to Visor 3. Mm, yeah, and Visor 3 is obviously in it for the murder. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, he's he's not at all using his Andalite body for any anything good. He'd reject the robot body because he wouldn't be able to devour his subordinates. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't provide him with the, the, for, the vor fetishization that he so craves. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Twitter, don't add us. We know that's not how war works. So, yeah, I guess that's just been... I don't know why I came to the conclusion that the Yerks must want something more than just to conquer. I mean, I feel like maybe that's something that's going to be borne out in future books. But I guess we also don't... We don't have a lot of Yerk perspectives yet. Well, I believe there is a discussion in one of the books we've already read about how Earth has so many hosts that they'd never have to take over another planet again. But yeah, I I think you're right. The more Yurk perspectives we see, the more that we're probably going to see them sketched out as individuals with different perspectives. And it just so happens that the society that they're trapped in right now is all based on colonial adventure. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the, the biggest perspectives we've gotten so far have been Chapman sort of secondhand, uh, Temlin, the Yurk that used to belong to Tom that infected Jake, and also Eslin, the the Yurk from the last book. Look at me remembering all these Yurk names. Uh, Eslin, the Yurk from the last book who fell in love with one of his Yurk mates and, and then tried to take out Visor 3 on account of losing her. Yeah, I get the feeling he would definitely have been in for a robot body. 
Yeah, I think you're I think you're probably right. And maybe the problem is that most of the Yurks that we've gotten perspective from from so far are like company men. <laughs> like Timlin, Timlin was he was climbing the ranks. He was in it. We don't need a transition here. I'm just going to come out and say it. This book was full of proving you correct. Oh shit, yeah. I'm you know, I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to. <laughs> This book vindicated a couple of things that I vaguely have remembered, but could not really pinpoint in the books. <laughs> so I feel great about that. The number one being fucking zero space and the Andalite's mass or the Morpher's mass going into zero space whenever they become something small, which I feel great about being proved right about. Because that sounded crazy to me, even as I was thinking it in previous episodes. Yeah, and the fact that spaceships traveling through zero space sometimes run into it. Yeah, I desperately want to know what happens when when a spaceship disintegrates your mass. Because like, what do you like half morph out? And then you're like, well, I can't morph arms because my arm mass got disintegrated. Like, do you have to make a choice about what part of your body gets restored? I think right now, our best option to reconcile this along with where the extra mass comes from when they morph something bigger than themselves is that everybody's mass in Z-Space just pops into some big fatberg planetoid full of muscle and skeletons and organs and shit and just hangs out there. And then sure. if yours is there, you grab it. And if you need more, you, you grab that. So, like, if you went hiking around this ma- this fatberg, you'd be able to see, like, Tobias Peak. And that's where all of his Tobias's extra mass will be forever, because he's a hawk now. Sure, just chilling in Z-Space. I imagine that if you were hiking around it, most of it's constantly pulsing due to people morphing, so it's uh, growing and, and <laughs> receding at different rates. But yeah, Tobias Peak is a constant, since he's now a Nothlet. Well, that's something. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's... There's probably some Nophilids that got stuck in larger bodies and probably some that got stuck in smaller. So maybe it all averages out. Yeah, that's true. I guess parts of Tobias might be in other things morphing larger than them. Oh, what if when what if when Rachel becomes an elephant, she gets part of Tobias in her form? Isn't that beautiful? That's that's so romantic. Do, do you have a little Tobias in you? Would you like some? Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should make those into Valentine's Day cards. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, yes. <laughs> God, it's so long till February. Good. That'll, that'll be how long it takes me to do those. <laughs> Speaking of romance, this is a great segue. Speaking of romance, it was super creepy to me. That Marco's dad was like, yeah, your mom and I used to quarrel and have spats every once in a while, but then they all just stopped suddenly and we reached a perfect union. We reached perfect love. Um, that was creepy because that's when Marco's mom became Visor 1. Like, that's when she became controlled. Yeah, well, the Yerk didn't have any interest in interior decorating or whatever it was they used to fight about. Yeah, this, the petty domestic squabbles. But also it's super creepy to me that instead of Marco's dad being like, yeah, and then she changed and it was really weird and horrible. He was like, yeah, then she changed and everything was perfect because we never fought. Ooh, that, I feel like Marco's dad is a little emotionally stunted. I mean, I can see 
I can see how it might look like that in a vacuum, but I guess it depends on how long they've been married. Because over time, you do have way less of those, and it's nice. I will occasionally think back on my earlier years in my relationship with my wife and think, geez, thank God I am not that petty anymore, and we just don't argue about stupid shit like that as much. So, I, I don't know. That's a nice perspective, Brent. I'm glad you had that married person, long-time married person perspective to add. Yeah, I, I definitely the way it's phrased sets off some, some sort of weird alarm bells, but the sentiment, I think, of like, man, it was really nice that we just sort of mellowed and didn't fight anymore. That's a thing that I think is, I mean, I, I only have my own relationship experience to extrapolate from, but I would hope it's pretty common. Yeah. Unless Val's a controller. <gasps> Oh my god, Brent. <laughs> you, you just you just actually alarmed me for a moment. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Well, if listen, if Val if you wake up in the dead of night and Val tells you not to take a job with a military company because they'll get you and you freak out and then years later after she's dead, do you do that thing. Don't instead. Instead of doing that thing, don't. Jenna, you don't understand. She she knows my last name. <laughs> That's true. You're in danger. <laughs> Hecate saved me. <laughs> uh, what a good prayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was it was a little frustrating for me that Marco's dad was like, yeah, and and then one this one really weird time that's weird enough that I remembered it and I'm telling you, my son, years after your mother's death, one time she told me not to take the job that I literally just took. Oh, for real though. Oh boy, Marco's dad, who doesn't have a name yet. The sheer amount of effort that it must have. I don't think his mom has a name yet either. No. I'm not sure any of their parents except Rachel's, maybe. Because I think Rachel's referred to each other by their names. I feel like maybe Cassie's parents have, too. Oh, God, I'm bad at remembering this. Yeah, I'm bad at remembering my own friend's parents' names, too. Hey. So, so the, the sheer amount of effort that it must have taken for Marco's mom to overwhelm her yerk, especially a high-ranking one like Visser One. Hmm. I guess, assuming that that was Visser 1 at the time and she didn't just get swapped. That's a good question itself. Like, why why did Visser 1 choose this body? Presumably, Visser 1 gets their choice mm-hmm. of bodies. So it's a, it's a big question mark, according in, in my mind, about why Marco's mom specifically. Like, was she also an engineer? Was she doing military stuff? Did she have inside knowledge? We don't, we don't have a lot of background on her yet. I think all we really know about Marco's mom at this point is that she enjoyed sailing. And that she was good at it, but not so good that nobody thought it was weird that she died sailing alone? <laughs> I mean, shit happens on the ocean. It's a harsh mistress. That's fair. I just feel like, especially in the 90s, like if I heard somebody today died sailing alone on the ocean, I'd be like, yeah, that seems about right. I feel like in the 90s, that was such a weird cliche. Like, 90s and early 2000s, that was such a weird movie cliche, the the sailing um, faked death. (laughs) Now that you've said it, and I I can't pinpoint any specific instances off the top of my head, except maybe it happened in Wild Things. But yeah, I, I think maybe that was just media culture at that time focusing so heavily on trust fund kids in the Hamptons. Hmm. 
Yeah, wait, was there somebody... Did Natalie Wood die that way? She died drowning. That's a that's a weird poll. Never mind. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, is, are, are we talking about a movie or a real person? Because it's not yeah. a trope if it happens to a real person. You, you yeah, know that, no. right? I do know that. <laughs> but I was thinking that that might be like a downstream influence. Like it happens to a real person and then, and then media Ooh, mimics it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like the, the SVU effect. Yes, exactly that. Although I do believe Natalie Wood just died. Like she didn't fake her death. But it was under mysterious circumstances. Sure, sure. But no, I feel like, I just feel like the 90s and the early 2000s, that was a weird recurring trope. Although now that you mention it, I cannot name a single movie or show in which that's the thing that happens. Uh, so Sarah Michelle Gellar was in a show where that was a thing and she was twins. <laughs> I was actually pretty good, but that wasn't in the that wasn't in the 90s. That was definitely post like 2007. That was in the 2010s. I don't remember that at all. Well, it, it was only on for like a season and a half or two seasons, so. Oh, maybe I do remember that a little. God, I wish I could remember what it was called. Somebody's going to tell me and I'm going to feel like an idiot. Yeah, we're just going to have to look up the TV Tropes <laughs> article for that after the podcast. Uh, and then I feel like there were some instances of that in Revenge, which again is a 2010s mm. thing. Yeah, Revenge was so good, though. I loved that show. Um, are we maybe projecting this backwards onto the 90s? Maybe, maybe we remember it from this book, uh, from this series, and so retroactively it seems like a much bigger thing than it actually was. That's very possible. That's um, a funny thought, because earlier when you said we're getting to the parts of the series where you remember plot points, we're starting to get to the part of the series where I know I read the books, but I remember way less. Oh, that's weird. That's a weird inverse. Yeah, like I distinctly remember reading the book with this Marco wolf spider oh cover yeah on. it this because this cover is evocative but i did not remember shit about the chi or the pemelites i really the thing that i remember most from this book is the image of uh eric kneeling down projecting a hologram of a yerk going into a pool and then doing the inverse of that something about that image is really it really stuck with me it stuck in my mind <laughs> oh god <laughs> it, it flattened itself out and wrapped itself around your brain <laughs> Yeah, and now it's a part of me forever. At least for the next three days until it needs Kendrana. <laughs> Just the idea that the Yerks all go into this pool at once and then don't talk at all is so also weirdly creepy. Like, because that's like the opposite of my pool time experiences, <laughs> where you go to the pool and you're hanging out with friends and you're chatting and, and everybody's having a good time. Like, uh, it, can you imagine going to a, a human pool where there's a bunch of people swimming and nobody's talking or looking at each other or engaging in any way? It's creepy. Maybe the Yerk pool just has a constant lifeguard whistle going off so everybody's quieted down. <laughs> They're all really concerned. They're waiting for announcements for the, the pool bar to be open again. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about the idea that they just, they all get into this pool and they eat and then they go back into their host, but they never fucking talk. I mean, we know they talk to a certain extent because Ezlin and, and Darane, I, I have my notes from last week near on hand, which is how I remembered either of those names. The the I feel like Eslin indicates that they had some sort of connection before they got hosts because they were separated once they got hosts. Yeah, well, the exact quote is Yerks communicate very little in their natural state. And I imagine that for some of them, it's different. Like, obviously, Eslin and Durante's situation is not common enough that Visser 3 is always fending off attempts on his life. 
<laughs> That's true. Not that we know of anyway. Although I would not be surprised if it were just constant assassination attempts from his fed up workers. There's a part early on in this book, and we talked about this because it made us both sad. It, there's a part early on where Marco morphs a bird and is like, man, being a bird's dope. Tobias doesn't have it that bad. And then immediately gets attacked by a peregrine falcon. Uh, and Tobias saves his ass. But they have a conversation where Tobias is like, oh, yeah, I know that falcon. He's taken a swipe at me before. That's sad. It's Brent. extremely sad. You're like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, he tried to eat me once. Yeah, there's something about that that made me so sad. Like, you become so immune to the harassments in your day-to-day -day life that you're just like, yeah, that, that's a peregrine falcon that's tried to eat me before. I've named him asshole. <laughs> I mean, it says something how matter-of-fact he told Marco, yeah, in about three seconds, you're gonna bank hard right. Yeah, he knows, and he knows how to avoid it. Like, he knows the peregrine falcon's weakness. Like, this is some sort of weird bully situation, but Tobias is over it. Sure, like, peregrine falcons can't turn left or right, so. <laughs> but yeah, it's very strange, because you'd think, like, it's, there's a clear and present danger to Marco's life. You'd think he'd be like, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> but he's just so inured to this, oh yeah, that guy. But yeah. it's just like, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna wanna. I don't wanna bank. <laughs> and I mean, Marco does, which is the good news. He trusts Tobias. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it also says something about how uh, how much they've come to depend on each other for their lives, that he just immediately follows Tobias's instructions before asking, hey, what the shit? Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't make a smart comment. He just does the thing. And it saves him life. So good instinct. Good trust. Yeah, that's one last close call in this book, which I think holds the record oh. so far for the most close calls. Yeah. Yeah. And the closest close call. When he actually died towards the end? Yeah. When he gets eviscerated as a gorilla and his heart stops. Oh. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and Eric has to give him an electric shock to wake his heart back up. I kind of rushed past this in the summary, but the whole thing about getting this Pemolite crystal is that Visser 3 has constructed, uh, or ordered the construction of, I guess, this elaborate security system that involves tension wires strung all over a room, and like, photovoltaic sensors, so the whole thing has all these baffles to keep all light out entirely, and the entire floor is pressure censored except two feet around the walls, and apparently this humongous table in the center. Yeah, it has to be giant, because they all become human slash andalite and then become their battlemorphs. So it has to be a huge plateau in the center. Right. It's holding an andalite and a bear and a wolf and a tiger and a whatever the hell. A gorilla. Yeah. So they, they sneak into this place as bugs, as uh, wolf spiders and roaches and almost get eaten by a rat and almost get torched by the furnace and then morph into bats in this completely dark room so that they can see all the tension wires and fly around them and they all think it's awesome and they get the crystal in the middle and then they're like well how do we get out yeah a very frustrating moment because it, it it we talk a lot about how bad their plans are and this is a book where they talk about how bad their plan was it's baffling to me that they had the beginning of a good plan and then the first time they ran into a snag, they were like, well, let's default to the Rachel. Yeah, yeah, it really is like they, they get to this point where they have this like grape sized crystal that they need to carry out, but they need their echolocation so they can't use their mouths 
And I guess these bats don't have feet that can grab. They're not very specific about what kind of bat they are. Yeah, they're footless bats. They're the kinds without feet. <laughs> they lost them. The trout took their feet in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> they're the kind of bat that stack up like logs instead of clinging to ceilings when they sleep. <laughs> so, they, yeah, and they're first, they go immediately to, well, I guess we're fighting our way out, which, you guys. They're a goddamn D&D adventuring party. Oh my god, they really are. This book, maybe more than ever. Yeah, they do a great job through the stealth section, but then at the first hiccup, they're like, well, <laughs> let's go. Let's go whole ape. Yeah, and of course, there's like a bunch, there's too many. I say a bunch, there's too many hork and human controllers with machine guns. <laughs> yeah. Just waiting for them. And they get into a dire moment, and I mean, we get this... I, it's a pretty, it's pretty fucked up where uh, Marco is dying. Like he's been eviscerated. He is dying. Yeah, like his life is flashing before his eyes. Yeah, and our eyes as the reader of this POV. Uh, Eric gets the crystal and changes his programming so that he can be violent. And then it's a, the hard fade to black. And then it's cut to all of them gathered around. Everybody's safe. Eric is crying, which is sad, is extra sad for an android to cry. Marco was trying to figure out, which seems like weirdly not the point uh, in the moment, but Marco was trying to figure out like if he has to will those holographic tears to happen or... yeah. What a beautiful image. Oof. Yeah, or if it's if it's part of his programming to express crying when he's upset. That's good writing. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah, and it's um it's wild because earlier in the book you see sort of this rival faction of Chi who are insistent, like, no, no Chi has ever taken a life. The Pemelites programmed us to be nonviolent. We've lived this way forever. How who are you to change it? And Eric is insistent you know well if they hadn't broken up for nonviolence, maybe they'd still fucking be alive yeah and then as soon as he is able to do violence and accomplishes it in i think axe described it as brutal and efficient yeah it's something like 10 seconds he wipes out about like 40 people in hork vajir yeah a, a goodly mix some of whom have guns and just ugh, gone and it as soon as he has had to do this, he changes himself back and gives Jake the crystal and doesn't want to talk about it. Doesn't even want to acknowledge that the crystal exists. So no chi has ever been, has ever taken a life. Eric really skipped to the front of the line <laughs> to, to make up for all those years of nonviolence and then immediately shuts it down. But I think, I, I mean, part of me is like, come on, you guys. Just give it a give it a chance. Give violence oh, a chance. Oh. I know, I know, I know. I feel bad about it. I don't even like humans all that much, but I do want the animorphs to win. What about the dogs? What about the dogs, Brent? I want the dogs to win too. I want the dogs to be safe and happy. But I mean, Marco makes the because the the linchpin in at the end of this, like the understanding that Marco comes to is that even though none of the Animorphs are doing great dealing with the situation, they have built in mechanisms as humans that allow their memories to fade and, and to not have to deal with it anymore. The the Chi don't have the ability to erase their memories, it, it seems, and they live forever and can always vividly remember the horror that 
at least in Eric's case, that they have perpetrated. And I thought that was kind of interesting given the book with Jake when he was briefly a controller. Because part of the torture that the Yurk impl- inflicts on Jake is memories, like really realistic and-, and vivid memories that he's forcing Jake to relive physically. So I thought that was, it just occurred to me that that's sort of an interesting through line between the- these two moments of psychological horror. Yeah, this isn't the first time that K.A. Applegate has played around with the idea of how traumatic memories can be. Yeah, and how how important it is that memories fade, and how damaging they can be if they don't fade. So I, I really did like how ambiguous she has managed to make it in this book, because when Eric and the other Chi, whose name I forget, are arguing about getting the Animorphs to get this crystal so they can reprogram themselves, my initial thought what i actually wrote down was if this was a bioware game removing the chi programming against violence would not get you paragon points <laughs> because a bioware game it would be very very clearly this bad this good yeah i mean you might you might do better in the final battle but you'll be a bad you'll you'll get weird veins on your face or some bullshit and uh and, and having finished this book i'm still not certain which side i come down on it, i go back and forth and i think this is a similar almost a similar sort of conundrum as the the cassie book because it's the question of do you sacrifice yourself personally to potentially save your community or the things that you love and and like the chi aren't aren't even really part of the earth community in a, a, a literal sense although i guess you could argue that they did they did domesticate dogs for us so what more could you do to become part of the earth community maybe nothing i mean they also have been living in human society since they arrived on earth they've been living as humans yeah yeah and eric describes how he helped build the pyramids as a slave that was kind of weird yeah that was strange he was sort of weirdly proud of it <laughs> and i I can't imagine being a slave was super fun in ancient Egypt, building the pyramids. It sounded like he enjoyed the challenge of not upstaging everybody else with his super robot strength. Yeah, there was something about that anecdote in general that was sort of off-putting to me. Anyway, I I think it it speaks to how well-written these are for young adult fiction and how the subject matter is incredibly gray throughout the entire series <laughs> it's gray matter is that what you're saying <sighs> is what you're saying right brent sure yes that's what i'm saying <laughs> yeah I, I think it's fair i mean we don't i don't think we get really good answers at the end of this i think that the chi choosing not to become violent or really eric choosing for the rest of the chi not to become violent i mean that maybe there's a question there is like the fact that he and Maria, which is the other Chi that he was arguing with, the fact that they don't have consensus raises a question because he seems to choose for all the Chi what their future and what their participation in this war is going to be like. And, and they do, like, it is indicated that they are going to still participate. It, they're just going to do it their own somewhat nonviolent way. Although, again, arguments open to whether keeping a Yurk indefinitely prisoner counts as violence. I mean, I guess they have a a definition of violence hard-coded so it's violent by whatever their programming defines as violence yeah that's fair they're gonna keep fighting the yurks in that in those well-defined parameters i mean you can make the argument that he's literally the only chi ever to have the knowledge necessary to make that choice for the rest of them yeah that's fair it just seems like 
I, there's, I feel like there's no way to argue in in a in such a way where I'm not arguing for violence. <laughs> I, I feel like, especially now, not to get too real, but we're in a, a very interesting moment where there's a lot of discussion about when and where is violence allowed, and when do we need to deploy violence in order to keep larger communities safe. And I, I think there's a question there because he, again, he goes full blown. He does not dip his toe into the river of violence. He submerges his whole uh, ivory and steel body in it. It's interesting that you bring up a contemporary reading because I was just thinking that there's some uncomfortable analogies that can be made here where the Chi have the ability to basically nope out of this conflict. They're going to be mm. fine no matter what. Mm. And yeah. so rather than choosing to stand up for the humans who collectively cannot really do much about the Yurk invasion at this point, they're sort of retreating into their privilege? I mean, I think that's a fair point. They can't really be controlled, as as Eric proves. Like, he, he was infested with a Yurk, but he they didn't take... And the fact, I mean, maybe that's why the anecdote that K.A. chooses to share from Eric's past is him being a slave, because that is probably what would happen to the Chi if the Yurks managed to take over. Like, they're probably not going to be destroyed. Or they might be. I guess they can't really fight back. But it, it seems more likely, yeah, that they're just going to retreat or maybe be incorporated into the Yurk future. And that's just it. Like, they'll they'll keep on keeping on. Yeah, I mean, I, I was presuming that they would all just hold a, a Yurk captive like Eric is and oh. blend in with the Yurks in much the same way as they've been living among humans. Yeah, just like at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where you've got the, the one character who's low-key, quietly, depending on which version you're, you're watching, I should say, uh, one one member of the original crew low-key quietly infiltrating and not being called out as being purely human. But I think you're probably right, actually, yeah. They probably could just do that indefinitely and just keep on with their lifestyle and then watch all the dogs on Earth get murdered because that's what the Yurks are going to do. Yeah, so I don't have like a fully formed analogy here because mostly because I'm dumb as hell. <laughs> but there is definitely a contemporary political reading that you could put into this that make the chi not look great for choosing nonviolence. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll look forward to seeing what role they play in the future. Because Eric is very much like we'll we'll give you information as much as we can, but they are taking a pretty non-active role in this situation. And, and I mean, that might not be the case. They might be really useful in the battle against the sharing or whatnot, but. For the time being, it's hard to it's hard not to read it that way. Yeah, I mean, although you're right, Eric, obviously, he does still want to help. He doesn't want the Yerks to win. He's just drawn the line at what is too much for the Chi to be able to live with afterwards. Yeah, and the thing that are too much for the Chi are the things that the Animorphs have to do. Yeah, they have just to. Just weekly. Yeah, they have to deal with this whether they like it or not. They will not come out of this okay, and the Chi have the ability to choose to continue to be okay and just let the Animorphs take care of this for them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a grim but accurate modern reading of, of the, the, the Chi have a certain amount of privilege that they're letting dictate their actions. Psst, the Chi are white dudes. Yeah, kind of, it's kind of right there. Yeah, shit. Well, I guess that'll do it for this week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Fandalites. Kind of a downer episode, sorry. Yeah, kind of a downer book. Yeah. 
Next week, we'll be reading book uh, 11, The Forgotten. Uh, so tune in for that. Thanks to Dustin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. Check out our website at fandalites.com. Hit us up on Twitter or Tumblr at fandalites and fandalites.tumblr.com, respectively. Mm-hmm. Check out our sister site, andalitetruth.org, where finally <laughs> you can learn about the the torso lie that has perpetuated itself low these many years across every medium across years dec- nay decades of animorphs fandom uh and if you've got anything to say or uh any fan art please hit us up fandalites at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you uh, we'd love to add your stuff to andalitetruth.org if you have your own torso free <laughs> andalite fan art yeah, and if you like what you're listening to uh, and you've got friends who are into Animorphs or the 90s or uh, overthinking nostalgic culture, please share this with him and, and listen to it and talk and, and grow your friendship. Yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have more of, of our beautiful listeners to share this with. We'll see you next week. And remember, nostalgia is a drug. Nostalgia is a drug.